sister, sister, there were never such devoted sisters, never had to have a chaperone, no sir, I'm here to keep my eye on her. Hi, this is Tammy. And this is Angeli, and we are the podcast with Sisters. Sisters. Welcome, everyone. Today we have Dr. Katrina Lewis with us. She is an amazing, diverse pain medicine doctor who most recently, I'm going to let her talk really about her background uh, because it is so diverse and so wonderful. She's from South Africa. Most recently, she has been in Montana consulting the benefits health industry and the hospital there, uh, starting a pain medicine clinic. She then began her own PTSD clinic in Great Falls and Helena and has been working with patients there locally, but all over the world. So I want to hand it over to Katrina and let her talk about her background. Welcome, Katrina. Thanks. Thanks so much, Angeli and Tammy. Yeah, I um, there's a lot to tell. Um, Montana has been a great, great experience and it is where I initiated the PTSD program whilst I was a consultant at Benefice Pain Clinic. They brought me in to help develop some new protocols and new procedures and help out with kind of rationalizing their approach to pain and improving it, obviously. Um, I've been a physician for 35 years now, started out in South Africa. I did a lot of emergency medicine and some surgery in South Africa moved over to England and did locums over there. Also, again, primarily in the surgical and uh, emergency medicine fields. And then did a stint actually as the love boat doctor. I was a cruise ship doctor for a while. That's my favorite. That's another whole (laughs) saga. A very interesting period um, that I absolutely loved and got to see the whole world. So my original degree was obviously an MD in South Africa. I did also, so I went to medical school fairly young. So I actually graduated not only with my MD, but also with a Bachelor of Science in Immunology and Physiological Chemistry. It was a a research degree and I'd done a thesis on monoclonal antibodies. And that's always been one of the aspects of human health that has really fascinated me as our immune systems. Mm -hmm. And it's part of what started my journey in terms of being a very integrated physician. In other words, not super specialized, always having a focus on the whole patient. And I think my training in South Africa, I have to thank for a lot of that as well. We were always taught you make 80% of your diagnoses by history alone. And then obviously we've taught some good exam skills, which certainly seem to have dissipated somewhat in the current medical industrial complex that they call American healthcare. Although there are some fabulous doctors, obviously, in America too. So um, I also obtained a degree in clinical nutrition with the American Academy of uh, Nutrition whilst I was at sea. And then obviously did the exams and requirements to get into a residency in America. And so I'm double board certified in anesthesiology and then additionally in interventional pain medicine. So my primary specialization for the last 15 years or so was in interventional pain, doing things like radio frequencies, um, spinal cord stimulators, peripheral nerve stimulators, 
epidurals, those standard things, and then some other very weird and wonderful blocks. And I do my, I used to do a lot of my injections under ultrasound as well as under fluoroscopy. And that was kind of what segued into developing ultrasound guided skills for the block in particular, we're going to be talking about later because that does require a level of expertise in ultrasound that not everybody has. And uh, I've been a national speaker, spoken at many pain conferences on the topic of medication management. I've, I've never been a pill pusher. I've always questioned a lot of the overuse of pharmaceuticals in this country, particularly coming from South Africa, where we very seldom see patients on more than two or three medications, to suddenly seeing 40, 50% of patients on at least 10 medications. I've also done uh, lecturing on pharmacogenetic testing, <clears throat> which also made me realize how dangerous all these combinations of pharmaceuticals are in terms of not only drug-drug interactions, but drug pharmacogenetic system cytochrome P450 enzymes in the liver interactions and how that also leads to illness and other symptoms that they then use another drug to treat. So, um, and then I went and got my board certification through the American um, Academy of Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine, A4M for short. Um, so I did a functional medicine degree. It's, it's a broad one because obviously there's very big specialties within the framework of functional medicine. But I used my skill sets and my knowledge and experience acquired over so many years in the pain medicine field, because you literally, when you're approaching a chronic pain patient, <clears throat> you can't just look at the presenting pain problem. You've got to look at underlying psychosomatic drivers of pain and dysfunction, such as anxiety and depression. You've got to look at what medications they're on. You've got to look at overall health. You've got to look at things like what are their vitamin D levels like? What sort of exercise they do? Are they heavy nicotine smokers? Because nicotine, people don't realize, not only is a lethal, lethal poison, but interacts with many medications. So it actually increases your pain sensitivity and interacts with a lot of drugs, which is why a lot of smokers not only develop accelerated spine degeneration and other issues, but will not respond well to typical analgesic pain medications. Um, so that's kind of the, the broad strokes of things. And so when I was at Benefice treating chronic pain patients, the chronic pain population is very, very diverse. It comes from every specialty in medicine. Pe people don't realize that, and it's kind of why I almost really dislike the term chronic pain. It's why I dislike the word cancer, the cure for cancer. It, it, cancer is such a diverse entity or disease process. In fact, it's a metabolic disease more than anything else. And depending on what kind of cancer you're talking about, and the individual person in which that cancer has popped up <clears throat> determines so many things. So and chronic if, and pain, pause there. We're going yeah. to have another podcast with you on cancer, specifically for your your personal struggles with it and your personal triumphs over it. 
without having the westernized medicine. But that's a whole nother podcast, just taking pause there <laughs> to make sure that you have a chance to to be able to speak on that at a later date too. She's overcome cancer several times now, and I think it's an amazing story that needs several times of, of uh, iterations to really share with people. Your story is amazing. But back to PTSD and chronic pain. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I'm excited about that podcast um, and to be working with people like yourself. So the chronic pain patient is a very complex entity. So your pain can be what's called neuropathic from nerve pain. Typical example is diabetic neuropathy. It can be vascular, things like CRPS or peripheral vascular disease, ischemic Lack of blood flow to limbs can cause a lot of pain. It can be <clears throat> visceral pain. So some of the abdominal and pelvic pains are often from deep organ issues. And obviously we all know the musculoskeletal pain, or it's often called nociceptive pain. Nociceptive pain is your typical osteoarthritis and some mm -hmm. other things. But the specialization that I know you're big fans of is obviously myofascial. And I'm a big believer, especially in chronic pain, you know, in terms of myofascial pain drives most spine pain. It has nothing to do with what's on the MRI. Where I'm leading to with this is that not only are you looking at a lot of layers of complexity in terms of achieving best results for chronic pain patients, but many of them have addiction issues or substance use disorders, often <clears throat> precipitated by physicians over-prescribing certain medications. A lot of them have anxiety and depression, which will always interplay and are synergistic with pain in terms of its perception and its severity. And then, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the PTSD issue, which is why we're here today. So a lot of chronic pain patients have PTSD, and I'd always recognized for many years, one has to be very circumspect in terms of prescribing if one does do narcotics. And I'm not a, I'm what's called an opioid moderate. There's a place for it. There's just sometimes certain pain that's so severe, you have to do something for the patient. And conventional anti-inflammatories and nerve, nerve pills don't always work. And it can do dramatic things for a patient in terms of their functionality and quality of life, which ultimately is what it's all about, right? It's not to do with my pain score is X because that's a totally subjective thing for everybody, but it's about functionality and quality of life. So PTSD, I started to discover, as I say, was a huge driver for addiction. And I became more and more impressed with how many of my chronic pain patients had PTSD. So I attended a conference in 2017 where I heard Sean Mulvaney and um, Lipoff was actually Sean Mulvaney speaking about their results with the stellate ganglion block and PTSD. And this gold standard way of doing stellate ganglion blocks is under ultrasound. There are physicians who do it under x-ray, but it's not as safe and it's not always as effective. Whereas with ultrasound, you can see everything. And if you're proficient and skilled, it's a very minimally invasive procedure and very safe. And 
you can see exactly where you're going and use much lesser quantities of the medication. And we'll talk about that later. But um, that's what gave me the idea of offering it to patients at my clinic because uh, my pain clinic at Benefice had a behavioral health department with a whole lot of psychologists. We had an addictionologist. We had all the parameters of what's called a multidisciplinary type of pain clinic. And so that's how I started. And in fact, most of my first few patients were staff members. And the results were so incredible. It just ballooned from there. I, I never did any marketing and the hospital did no marketing on my behalf. It was all word of mouth within my community. And then it expanded and expanded. And in 2021, I resigned from Benefice and started my own PTSD clinic and landed up attracting patients from Canada, Washington State, Spokane, especially uh, Idaho, and then obviously the whole state of Montana. And having such a huge veteran population was also a big feeder for my business. But one of the things we need to discuss is about the prevalence of PTSD and the fact that it's not limited to veterans. So and that's can we pause and define it? Just I know it, it's a common term for you and for all of us in this podcast, but let's <laughs> pause for a moment and just really define PTSD in case those listening don't really know what we're talking about. That's a good point. So PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. In decades prior, in World War I, for instance, they used to call it a simple name, shell shock, which is actually far more evocative of how damaging this particular, sorry, my cat is jumping up, um, how damaging this disorder is. So if you go to the veterans website, for instance, they talk about that it's essentially a mental health disorder. Um, and one of the definitions is that it's a condition of persistent mental and emotional distress caused either by injury or severe psychological trauma and shock of some kind. I, over the years of doing and treating PTSD and actually not just treating PTSD, but the gamut of anxiety disorders, because I discovered that it's all on a continuum. I've discovered that it's not, I don't truly believe it's a mental health disorder. I believe it's a disorder of chronic dysfunctional sympathetic nervous system tone. So that leads to what is the sympathetic nervous system? In short, that's your fight and flight system. So that's the system that sends off the alarms when your body thinks you're in danger. So what happens is in people who develop post-traumatic stress or other anxiety disorders is there's often a genetic predisposition. So two people can go through the same event. One will recover quickly or have no PTSD at all, whereas the other one will go on to develop chronic PTSD. And what happens is that that system, if it's overstimulated enough, instead of resetting back to a baseline, physiological normal level for sympathetic, what they call tone, it'll become stuck at higher levels. And with increasing hyperactivation of that system, 
and you being in that higher level of sympathetic hyperactivation, the worse your symptoms will be. And PTSD as well is not just, people have weird ideas on, on what, how it, how it presents. So there is a scoring system that people can look up on the internet called the PCL5. It's a 20 question questionnaire and it has a score from zero to 80. Once you're over about a score of about 30, you have some element of PTSD. And obviously it's in what's called the DSM-5, which is what MDs use as a psychological criteria for diagnosis of a variety of mental health disorders. What it does is it presents with a whole, basically a set of four different symptoms. So in each individual PTSD patient, some symptoms are more prominent than others. So one subset of symptoms would be the reliving thing. And that's where patients will have repeated flashbacks or repeated nightmares about the experience or where certain sounds or certain images or certain locations, someone yelling at them will trigger them to relive that past psychological trauma. And it doesn't just have to be one trauma. For some patients, it takes multiple traumas. For instance, all of the childhood PTSD patients I treated. So in my practice, it landed up being that probably 60 to 70% of my patients were actually complex childhood trauma. So they were repeatedly traumatized throughout their childhood and teen years. And it's interesting because they estimate something like 20 to 30% of veterans will have PTSD. And I'm talking chronic PTSD because up to 22 million people can have, or, or, or a large majority or, or at least half of everybody in the US will have had some sort of traumatic event and may have had PTSD-like symptoms for a period of a few weeks or months, but often it will abate. I'm talking about the people where it lasts for more than six months and starts to impact their work, their functioning in society, their relationships, starts driving addiction, starts driving depression, all of those things. So to get back to the subtype, so the one subtype was that reliving type subtype. The uh, second one is avoidance subtypes where, for instance, this is common in veterans, they will avoid crowds. Crowds make them very nervous or for instance, if they've had a motor vehicle accident that triggered the PTSD, a lot of patients will avoid driving. And with the avoidance thing, you'll often see patients who are excessive workaholics. And uh, so they will distract themselves and keep endlessly busy because they just don't want to be inside their head. The third subtype would be where patients have a lot of very negative thoughts and feelings. So they feel numb. They feel like the the whole world's kind of against them. They have a lack of trust in people and in the world and feel that the world's dangerous. And it can also come along with feelings of guilt and shame about whatever happened to them in the past. And then the, the fourth subtype, and this is very common, especially in the more moderate to severe PTSDs, is the hyperarousal symptoms. So a lot of them will describe hypervigilance. And that's where they're very jumpy. You know, a loud noise can trigger them. 
Um, they're constantly looking around. Um, that's what the hyperarousal symptoms are what affect sleep, um, makes it hard for them to concentrate. It can also drive the addiction because people will use alcohol and other drugs to kind of calm themselves down to some degree or to help them sleep. And obviously there's many, many other symptoms that are in that thing like panic attacks. And what I've seen in a lot of PTSD patients, especially men, is anger and irritability. It's quite remarkable how much anger and irritability there is. So when I started the project, I was just looking at PTSD. But because of my background, I would never just look at that, right? I would look at their depression. So I would, And I would do objective scores like GAD, which stands for the Generalized Anxiety Score. So that would give me an idea of how much their pure anxiety is prominent. I would look at something called the PHQ-9, which is a depression score that is standard um, practice in most mental health practitioners in their practice to, to give an assessment, an objective assessment of the level of depression in a patient. But I would also look at, do they have pain? Um, things like fibromyalgia or headaches or back pain or pelvic pain. And then I've seen some very other strange pain presentations that actually responded to the injections. And then of course I would look at addiction because a lot of the referrals to me when I was at the hospital and also in private practice through the adult drug treatment courts and the veterans courts was the, the substance use disorder group of patients and how much the PTSD was driving that. And so as part of my monitoring process, because I'm very data driven, I don't like vague terms and I like to have obviously the patient's own perception of how well are they doing. But I would also chart very objective data because I wanted to see, am I really helping these people? So I would look every visit, I would see what their depression was doing, what their chronic pain was doing, what their addiction was doing, and then all of their prominent symptoms that were unique to them for PTSD. And that's one of the things that I think made my approach very unique. Although there are certain people like Mulvaney and Lebeuf who have treated a lot of PTSD patients, most of their cohort is, is veterans. They haven't really monitored beyond four months. Whereas I have patients that I've been monitoring for two, three, four years. And I did look at a very broad spectrum of symptoms and issues whereas everybody just focuses primarily on the PTSD. And can and we pause there for a moment, Katrina, and talk through what would a common approach to PTSD be versus this multidisciplinary approach that you are taking? Can you define the differences, the major differences between the two? Absolutely. So the most common approach is some sort of psychotherapy. The unfortunate part with that is, although it can be very helpful, particularly if there, there's only specific types of psychotherapy that actually have an evidence base for being useful in PTSD. One is something called um, cognitive um, processing therapy, cognitive behavioral, where you're changing how you think about things. The two that really make a difference is something called EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. 
Another technique is called emotional freedom technique. Some people have had very good results with tapping. And those, a psychotherapist who specializes in trauma and who uses those techniques will often get far better results. However, in, certain, in studies, they're showing that it takes at least 21 sessions. So if you say weekly, it's, you're talking six months or more to really start seeing some sustained results in patients. And some patients who are very close to suicide or who are in the midst of severe addiction issues, they can't wait that long. And also, obviously, if they have significant pain. Another way of approaching PTSD that's unfortunately very common is medications. And especially in certain healthcare systems like the VA, they throw a lot of psychotropic medications at veterans, like antidepressants, and they don't work. They actually can make patients worse. Um, there are some medications that help temporarily as kind of a Band-Aid, like Buspirone, Buspar is the trade name. That can help with anxiety. Some patients find taking beta blockers to slow down palpitations and actually control the sympathetic system can help. Um, there are drugs like benzodiazepines, obviously, Xanax and Ativan, but those drugs can be highly addictive, more addictive than opioids, actually. And they do have a rebound withdrawal effect, just like overuse of marijuana. And I'm talking THC. I'm not talking CBD. CBD in Europe has a great evidence base, but getting a pure CBD quality product is expensive. And you can't trust a lot of the supplements out there. But THC itself, patients think they're being calm, but all it's doing is making them stoned, essentially, or sleepy. And as it wears off, it actually worsens their anxiety. And I've had many people with substance abuse disorders say that they won't use THC, they'll use everything else, but they don't, won't do it because of the worsening of anxiety. And benzodiazepines have the same issue. So the medication side, just like with many chronic diseases, is not significantly the answer. If it was, we wouldn't be seeing the kind of prevalence of PTSD in this country that we do. Um, really quickly, and I want to ask, since you said the prevalence that we see in the United States, how prevalent is it really in the United States when you look at the whole gambit of what you are saying you know, the four different types of PTSD. How prevalent is this really? It's a very good question. So as you've ascertained from what I've been saying, most of the PTSD is actually from childhood PTSD and it's extremely prevalent. Um, I, I, you know, it, as another example, there's a huge group of people who frequently have PTSD who are people like firefighters, paramedics, policemen, even some physicians, actually, attorneys who work in a lot of criminal justice cases where murder and that kind of thing is involved. Um, but a lot is childhood trauma. There's just a lot of bad parents out there, unfortunately. Um, and then obviously women have a huge constitute far more than men just because we are more susceptible to those kind of sexual traumas. So in terms of numbers, um, so 
I'll just throw out a few different ones. One, I already said about 20% of veterans will have PTSD when they come back. One in three of those who, one in three vets who are seeking treatment for substance use disorder will also have PTSD. And then you've got numbers. It's hard to know the exact numbers because there's so many people out there who are not even aware they have it. They just think they're angry and irritable or they've never had good sleep problems or they just feel anxious all the time. They have no idea that they have PTSD. But they estimate that probably 6% of the U.S. population at some point will have PTSD. Most will recover. Um, in any given year, five out of 100 Americans are walking around with PTSD. So they estimated in 2020 somewhere around 10 to 13 million, I would say, people have PTSD. And that's PTSD not including other anxiety disorders like generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, social anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. Those are all um, preceding conditions that if the patient receives worse and worse psychological trauma in their life will eventually lead to full-blown PTSD. And as but you said, there's a lot of people out there that are undiagnosed. So those numbers are... Absolutely. Yeah. Those numbers are probably conservative. And then they, they estimate that 70% of adults have experienced some type of traumatic event in their lives, at least once. 49% of rape survivors will develop PTSD. And yeah, 20% of the US military, they estimate have PTSD. 50% of those, 20%, had pre-existing PTSD from childhood before they even go into the military. And then often what they experience during their military tours of duty will just compound it. Which goes they, into that elevated sympathetic nervous system going into whatever trauma they had that got experiences with them so that they already have that elevation of the sympathetic nervous system reaction. Exactly. Interesting. So how was your approach that you have now started? How is it different? Tell us about your, your approach. So it's a number of things. It's the, I, it, I didn't do a standard cookie cutter approach to patients. Every patient would have a full intake history where I would look at those scores and I would find out what their symptoms were, prevalent symptoms in those four subsets um, of, of predominant symptoms in PTSD. And I would ask about addiction and chronic pain So and, and monitor all of that. So that's a little different to what everyone else has done, first of all. I had a particular technique that I used for my procedures. All were done under ultrasound guidance. That, for me, is an absolute, even though, as I say, there are some pain doctors that do do it under fluoroscopy. But I wanted to have a perfect block every time. The only way to do that for safety is, is and for efficacy is direct visualization. And... The other thing that I did different was I didn't, most people out there have just who are doing these blocks, they just do one or two blocks. And for instance, 
one of the largest networks are treated in this country, Mulvaney and Lipov's group, the Stellar Network, they always start on the right side. And if the first block doesn't work, then they do the left side. I didn't do that. I would look at certain criteria, which are kind of proprietary, but it, it involved a few variables. But I, I realized quite quickly, I always started on the right side initially, but eventually there would be differences in whether I did the right or the left side. What I also realized that every patient needs a series of blocks, which makes sense to me. Why would you just do two blocks for everybody? The difference between, say, an 80-year-old that I'm treating who's a Vietnam War PTSD sufferer, for instance, or a childhood PTSD. So they've had PTSD for 70-plus years. And somebody who's just been in a bad car accident, say, um, or had one bad experience like that, and I'm seeing them a year or two after that, the difference in how you treat those two patients will be vastly different, right? Yes. And it's the same. We use stellar ganglion blocks. They're, they've been used in pain medicine for decades and decades. It's not a new therapy. Can Unfortunately, you, you the insurances claim it's experimental for trauma, so then most of them will not pay, although more and more are paying, and half the VAs will pay for it. But it's like saying, well, you know, aspirin is not FDA approved for prevention of heart attacks. People don't realize that. That's not FDA approved. Just because, you know, something is FDA approved doesn't necessarily mean it's safe or that it has no other purposes. So stellar ganglion blocks have been used for decades for treating, as I say, CRPS, shingles, trigeminal neuralgia in the face, chronic headache syndrome, certain types of atypical facial pain. So, though, and, and you realize that why does it work so well for CRPS, which is primarily an ischemia-driven thing, is that the reason it works well is because you're improving blood flow, not only to the arm, but to the brain as well. And that's another very interesting thing that I has added to my discoveries as I was doing the PTSD is it made it much easier for patients with traumatic brain injury whose symptoms are often very interwoven with PTSD, such as difficulty concentrating, memory issues and the anxiety, and, and the anger and irritability, to then tease out what's actually TBI traumatic brain injury, and what is actually PTSD. <clears throat> so I've had, for instance, two traumatic brain injury patients, both were women who'd been in motor vehicle accidents, and within five minutes of the block, the one would start walking normally, whereas before she'd always kind of be a little uncoordinated and stumble, and the other would start speaking normally, whereas prior to that, her speech would be very hesitant. So it's a fascinating, fascinating field. And all the injection involves is injection of this local anesthetic. Um, usually I always use Repivacaine because it's a safe one. You numb the skin and the muscle in the neck. That just stings for a few seconds. And then I would typically use somewhere between four to six cc's of local anesthetic at a particular level in the neck under ultrasound guidance. By blocking that sympathetic system with the local anesthetic, you decreasing the signals between the sympathetic nervous system and what's called the amygdala in the brain, which is truly the center that drives that fight and flight 
constant feeling of being in danger that uh, patients describe. So did I answer your question, Anjali? Yes, yes. And it, yes. <laughs> and it sounds like, again, the, the time frame to not think of it as a quick fix. That's the issue that we have in our country. You said it takes 21 sessions at least to begin to see a oh, true no. life change. Right? No, that's for psychotherapy, okay. 21 sessions. The stellate ganglion block is instantaneous within okay. 10 minutes. But what's, what's so wonderful about the block is, number one, you know immediately within 10 minutes if you've done it correctly. You get what's called a Horner's syndrome, which is temporary, goes away in a couple of hours, but the eyelid on that side will droop, the pupil will get smaller, and often you'll get some redness in the eye because of the improved blood flow. You want to see that. That's a sign you've done the block correctly. And I would get that hundred, almost 100% of the time with the ultrasound guidance. So can I ask you... But to... when the, from the minute they sit up, they, 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 I can tell you there's maybe just 5 or 10 patients, 5 to 10% of the patients, typically patients who've had PTSD for years and years, have tried everything and nothing's worked, and they're just like, I don't believe in this, this sounds too good to be true. That's a small percentage who go, well, I feel calmer, but, you know, I don't feel that much different. And then they go home over the next 24 hours, and that's when they see dramatic differences. But most patients will sit up, and within 10 minutes, I've had, I have people bursting into tears all the time saying, I've never felt like this before. Just like a, And there's different ways it manifests. Some patients will burst into tears. Other patients will describe just this wave of calmness going through their body. Some of them who have a headache, at the time I do the block, headache will just go away immediately, or their back pain, or their abdominal pain. Um, there, there's a variety of presentations. But they that's the beauty of this block, is that patients who have lost all hope can see that there is hope, that they get a chance to experience what feeling normal feels like, almost immediately. And I never use it as a standalone therapy. The patients must either start therapy if they're not already engaged in therapy, and they must continue that because once they're calm, the therapy even works better because they can That's talk about things they couldn't talk about. That's a big study that I am involved in right now is that multidisciplinary, as we go back to that, that we need to heal not only the psychological side, but with movement therapy. If it is an injury, say a traumatic injury from a car accident or a sexual abuse injury, we can only do so much with the brain. We have to allow the body to be involved in the emotional side to come out and be involved in healing the tissue. So truly healing the mind and body together. So I'm fascinated by your work because to marry the two up is such a powerful way to approach PTSD and other traumatic uh, symptoms and emotional issues. We need to involve the whole package, the whole body, yes. mind and body. You expressed that so well, Anjali. And that is the crux of the issue. You cannot divorce the mind from the body in any disease process. And a lot of these people with the chronic pain and the addiction, their nutrition is terrible. And their 
they haven't exercised. They just lie around. They don't go out. They don't engage. And so once they're calm enough, like yoga, for instance, it's very hard to do if you're not in a calm space, right? So um, you, you're right. Just just learn for them to learn that they can move their body, that they can breathe deeply without that overlay of the hyperarousal and the anxiety is absolutely crucial and ongoing psychotherapy. But what I say to patients is brilliant is that because they go, well, the psychotherapy has never done anything. I'm like, yes, but it's going to now because you're going to hear what the psychotherapist says or teaches you. If you're doing EMDR, some patients can't tolerate that because they're talking about the experience. It's too hyperactivating and stressful for them, but now they can. And it's the same with doing Pilates or exercise. It's like they're starting to feel their body and feel empowered, not just in their brain, but empowered in their bodies. And just in terms of the chronic pain, the nutrition and the exercise part of it is huge. Which gets back to the, it's not a quick fix. It's not something that you can just medicate and move on. It needs to be a lifestyle. It needs to be a whole lifestyle change. Yes. But it is quick in that I have patients who've tried everything and nothing's worked. And even within the first block, the things that will typically dissipate within the first or second block. And as I say, the sequence that I do the blocks in differs for each patient. And the number of blocks I do in what I call the initial series differs for each patient, depending on a number of variables. But within the first one or two blocks, over 80% of my patients Panic attacks will go away. Anger and irritability will go away. Nightmares will go away. Hypervigilance will go away. I've had a patient who absolutely hated going to stores or anything like that. He went shopping with his wife for an hour in Walmart afterwards. <laughs> oh, he was the avoidance subtype. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Which I understand. Yeah. Now he's, yeah, that's wonderful, Katrina. It's amazing, yes. the work that you're doing. Yes, and really quickly for people listening, can you define what is a block so that so that people fully understand what that means with the sympathetic nervous system? What is what is that? Sure, good question. It's, so a block is a term that's used loosely in all of interventional pain. People say, I had a nerve block. So mm-hmm. all it means is you're injecting local anesthetic around a nerve. And in the case of treating trauma, psychological trauma, you're talking about injecting local anesthetic around the sympathetic nervous system. Your sympathetic nervous system runs along your whole spine on both sides in a particular location. So by injecting the local anesthetic, you're blocking sodium channels in that nervous system. So the nerves cannot conduct. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean when somebody goes out and leaves my office, if somebody jumped out at them, their sympathetic system will still react normally. They're not just going to stand there like a zombie. But the hyperactivation part has been restored to a baseline setting. And so that's all it is. It's just blocking with the local anesthetic. And what's interesting is the effects on most local anesthetics, like the rapivacaine I use, it's half-life before the body breaks it down and metabolizes, somewhere between four to eight hours, sometimes longer in very elderly people. 
but the effects last much longer. So for instance, if I'm treating someone like say a military vet who's had one bad tour of duty, has come back with a PTSD, if you catch them early enough, or someone who's been in a car accident or a rape survivor, I can do one block on them and everything goes away and they're reset and they're good to go and I don't need to see them again. You know, just, or I do just one or two. But the complex childhood PTSDs in particular, um, they will need that initial series. And then especially because they've been dealing with this for years and they have a, a sympathetic system that is hyper irritable. It wants to go back to that hyperactivated state and anything, little things can trigger it, especially patients who are coming into contact, say with abusive ex-spouses or are in a work environment that is triggering that kind of thing. Over time, it will gradually start to creep back up. And then I give them boosters. Um, but over time, again, the, the time between the boosters, and they're all done the same way, will expand. So that typically by two or three years, unless another traumatic event occurs in their lives, I don't need to see them again. Mm -hmm. That's what people don't understand. It's it's something you live with. You, you're born with a predilection to PTSD. Now, if the trauma is severe enough, almost anybody can get it. But that's why a lot of people just recover without need for anything much. But why, it's also why some people will stay with those symptoms and it it sometimes won't take a lot of trauma to, to trigger them off. So it's a very complex field and I don't think it's been fully explained in the literature and in terms of the approaches that other people have done. Um, but it, I, I really believe it is incredibly prevalent. And if you throw in all the other anxiety disorders that I've mentioned, then you're really talking vast numbers of people. And I have, I've treated generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive social anxiety, just with those, I, I, or I never made the diagnosis myself. I would always require that diagnosis from a trained mental health professional. But I've treated them when they just have that diagnosis and no PTSD. I've had two schizophrenic patients. All the voices in their heads went away when you treated their anxiety. And interestingly enough, just as a, an aside, I've also treated a lot of long COVID patients. Sympathetic um, nervous system stellate blocks work really well for the taste and smell aspect of long COVID and a little bit with the concentration thing. Some of the other symptoms of long COVID, the, the, the lethargy and some of the pain doesn't respond that well or doesn't, the lethargy doesn't really respond at all. Um, but obviously long COVID's a very complex entity in and of itself. But I just thought that'd be a fun thing to throw in there. Well, this is fabulous, Katrina. Thank you so much. Dr. Katrina Lewis, if you'd like to look her up, we really would like to have you on several times. Obviously, there's a lot we can talk about with PTSD, but also um, with your, as a cancer survivor, I really would like to get into that story as well. So we thank you for being here with us today. Uh, so much information just given to us in that snippet amount, just a, a small amount of time. So please know that we will have Dr. Lewis back with us. And we, we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, my pleasure. And I, I would love you guys to talk more about the role of the, the body 
therapies mm -hmm. and the nutrition because mm -hmm. when I think of many mental health disorders are not truly mental health, they're driven by trauma, but the nutritional deficiencies play a huge role. Um, and people don't realize that a lot of preservatives in food are excited, what are called excited toxins. Mm -hmm. They cause inflammation in the brain. And so we've seen kids running around when you give them too much sugar. I mean, that's just a, a small example, but I really would love to see multidisciplinary programs for PTSD coming up that, that aren't just doing these medications yes. and therapy alone, because it's, it's not the answer for whole health, just as it never is the answer for whole health. So we are complicated beasts. <laughs> Very much so. Complicated yet simple. Go back to foundations of health, right? Good diet, get some exercise, you know, think good thoughts. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Katrina. We appreciate you. Yeah, my yes. pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so both. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye.